Good morning, Grace, and good morning to you if you are joining us. If you're living with somebody at Grace and they have the stream on or you clicked on the YouTube link from somewhere, we're glad to have you here with us this morning so that we can worship the one true God together. And this morning, we are going to be spending our time in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, we've taken a break from our preaching series. We've been working through 1 Corinthians for some time now, but a few weeks back we decided to shift gears for a couple of weeks and then we had Passion Week. And so it's been about four weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians, but now we want to circle back and spend our time in this wonderful book and seeing what Uh, Paul has to say to us as a church. And this morning, you need to know we're in an explosive passage. It's an explosive passage because it is telling us that we are a gendered people, that God has made us male and female, men and women, and we are to live this out in the church. And uh, it's explosive because the reality is, is that many people, because of the flesh, don't want to hear this word. They're, they're stopping their ears to what God has to say in this passage. It's explosive because sin has affected gender. Way back in the beginning, baked into the fall, is this idea that the genders are going to not work together the way that they were intended to work together. Um, Uh, Sin has affected how men and women interact. This is an explosive passage because uh, passages like this have been taken to the extremes in the past and in the present. And this has led to people justifying abuse and and, uh, robbing people of their dignity. It's explosive, I think, ultimately because it speaks to who we are at one of the most basic and fundamental levels. And we want to get this right. I think somewhere deep down inside of us, we want to know what it means that I'm a man or I'm a woman. And we want to live that out. And so we have a passage that speaks to this and therefore a lot is on the line. As Christians, we ought to want to know how God has made us. We ought to want to know what it looks like to to live out the purpose for which we were created. God has designed us and he's designed our and he's designed us uniquely and this uniquely enables us to live out our calling that has been placed on our lives to the glory of God and so this morning Paul is going to instruct us and what he's going to do is he's going to tell us that there is an oughtness to being man or woman to being male or female and this oughtness is to be lived out and lived out in particular in the church. And so we're going to see this idea be fleshed out in two points from 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Two points and then some implications from those two points. That's what we're going to be seeing this morning. And again, we'll see this from 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. So I'm going to read that. If you would, read along with me. Now, 
I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I'd like to pray as we go into discussing this passage, but uh, as, we, as I pray, I want to invite you to pray at home Uh, If you are meeting with a few people or just by yourself, I want to ask you to pray and pray that we would sit under this word and be instructed that God would open our eyes to it and pray for me that I would speak truly and clearly and with passion and zeal. And so let's pray now. Father, I thank you for your word and for the opportunity to come and gather underneath your word that we might be instructed, that we might be edified, that we might be equipped, that we might have our eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would work mightily in us this morning through the powerful working of your spirit to apply this word so that we would be men and women who live to the glory of your great name. Help us, Lord, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we dive into the points of the passage, I think it's important for us to, to kind of situate ourselves in the passage and get a little bit of context. And so I believe this passage is the beginning or an introduction to the next several chapters of 1 Corinthians. And it can be a bit tricky to navigate because it begins with a commendation. You're doing great. You're doing well. You're doing great. And then it almost immediately leads into a critique, but not that great. I think this flip-flopping is bound up in the word traditions. 
Paul commends the Corinthians for maintaining the traditions that he has delivered to them. And I don't think these sort of traditions are like having poppers at a Christmas dinner or having a particular food at Thanksgiving. No, the traditions in mind here are the scriptures. And in particular, that that word of the scriptures, the gospel word. I think that's what 1 Corinthians 15, for instance, teaches us. Paul is saying that you've embraced the gospel. You've received the gospel. And to an extent, you've lived out the gospel. And that is good. Praise God for that. But... There are some areas where you have not allowed the gospel to inform your way of living. And so from there, Paul launches into a few topics and there's a common thread with these topics. He launches into what we're going to be dealing with this morning and that is men and women in the church. And then he talks about division in the church as seen in the Lord's Supper. Then he talks about spiritual gifts in the church and then the union of the body. And the common thread in all of this is the church. And so what I think Paul is saying here is, is that you've received the gospel, but you haven't let the gospel totally shape how you gather together as the church, how you gather as the saints, how you assemble as the people of God. You haven't let the gospel inform how you worship corporately. And so here is some instruction. And for us, that instruction is first to men and women. And so the first point that we want to see from this passage this morning is that God has beautifully made men and women distinct. Again, there is an oughtness to being a man and there is an oughtness to being a woman. And so men and women and how we behave in the church, there's something in how men and women are acting in Corinth that is undermining the gospel. So how does Paul address this with anthropology and with theology? Verse three, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. This is a massively important verse. A massively important verse that we would do well to wrestle with and to try to get to the best of our ability. A couple words in here are particularly important. First, I just want to draw your attention to the word wife. Uh, there's a, a bit of a debate about this passage. Is it referring or is it addressing wives or is it addressing women in general? We see men and we see husbands, but what about single women, for instance, in this passage? I think that this passage in verse three certainly has wives in view specifically, but if we were to back out a little bit, generally we see that that Paul really deals with women and wives almost interchangeably throughout this passage. I think he's addressing both married women and single women. And then, of course, he's addressing men and husbands, which I think is a little bit more obvious from verse 3. And so I think we'll see that as we work our way through this passage. But second, there's this hugely important word, head. Head. Christ is the head of men, of man. And a husband is the head of his wife. What does this word head mean? Again, lots of different options. People debate this uh, and they debate it with vigor, but 
to me, it seems clear that here the word head means authority. Paul is saying here that every person is under authority. Men and husbands in particular are under the authority of Christ, the incarnate son of God. And a wife is under the authority of her husband. In verse three, Paul is helping us understand a foundational truth. Men and women are different. They relate to one another differently. They don't relate to each other in the exact same way. There is an authority structure baked into how we are to relate. So before Paul gets into the problem that the church in Corinth is facing, he lays down some foundational anthropological truths. Who are we as people? Who are we as men and women? Men in general are created to lead and have authority, while women in general are to be led and to submit to that authority. As one author puts it, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways that are appropriate to a man's differing relationships. And he also says that the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. I think these are both good definitions, biblical definitions, definitions that we see being unpacked here in 1 Corinthians 11. They tell us what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. There is a disposition on behalf of a man and a woman for men to lead and to take initiative and for women to submit and to help. There's an oughtness. Another pastor uh, and preacher who I respect and appreciate puts it this way. He says that men are to have an eager posture or an inclination to lead while women are to have an eager posture or inclination to help. These are all flexible words. So disposition, inclination, posture. They aren't supposed to be fixed and they're not supposed to be rigid. They're things that we can work with, but these are the postures that men and women respectively are to have. A posture towards leadership or a posture towards help. Women will certainly lead and men will certainly submit, but there's to be a posture here. And Paul tells us that these definitions are actually grounded. They're grounded. They're grounded first in creation. They're grounded in God himself. We see in creation, if you skip down to verses seven through nine, we have these verses that say, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Obviously, these are tricky verses. They're they're not saying, though, that man alone is the image of the invisible God. And that woman's sole purpose is to, to serve man. No, this passage 
has to be informed by all of scripture. And clearly what the Bible teaches us is that every person is an image bearer and every person can, can worship and glorify God. We all bear the image of the Almighty and therefore we all possess extreme worth. We are valuable and we have an inherent dignity because we are created in the image of God. So in what way was woman created for man then? This verse is saying that what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman and the inclination or the disposition or the posture to lead and to submit associated with being a man or a woman, that these are grounded in creation and created order in design. If you think back to the beginning, God made Adam and he made him with responsibilities like naming animals and working the ground. And, and then he created Eve because he saw that man was, was not complete. It wasn't good for him to be alone. So he made Eve to be his helper, a helper fit for him. And she was to come alongside and to submit to Adam's loving and servant-hearted leadership in cultivating the earth. And so as a part of God's original plan for humanity, his pre-fall plan, God commissioned Adam to lead the way in filling the earth with God's glory. And Eve was to come alongside Adam as his helper to ensure that this happened. And this was God's blessed plan from the beginning. But verse three goes further and it shows us these assignments, these roles, these designs, they're actually grounded in something even better than creation. They're grounded in God himself. Verse three, notice it. Christ is the head of man. The husband is the head of his wife and God is the head of Christ. We tend to focus on that explosive and culture-defying second phrase that the husband is the head of his wife. And I think we could do that for for good reasons, for sinful reasons, for uh, naive reasons, for unhelpful reasons, but that's often the case. But that phrase has to be understood in light of the first phrase and the third phrase. The first phrase that Christ is the head of man. And the third phrase that God is the head of Christ. These things tell us that man and woman's differing relationships, they image something inside the Godhead. When when men and women embrace their God-given responsibilities to lead, to submit, to help, we image the relationship between the Father and the incarnate Son of God. The relationship between man and woman is analogous to the relationship between the Father and the Son. When the eternally begotten Son of God stepped down into time and space, he lived a perfect life of glad and full submission to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. And never once did he waver under the Father's authority. And never once did he cease being God. And never once did he cease being of the same essence of the Father, the same stuff as the Father. Never once did he become less valuable than the other members of the Trinity. 
Men and women's relationships with one another are analogous to the relationships that exist within the Trinity. Analogies can go too far. But this one teaches us that it's good and right and beautiful for us to have differing roles and responsibilities because that's grounded in God himself. Not only that, but when men and women embrace these differing roles, they declare something redemptive. The Father sending the Son to come and take away the sins of the world as the Lamb for sinners slain. Maybe you've seen the A-Team before. The A-Team was an 80s TV show that was remade into a movie about 10 years ago. And the idea behind the A-Team was that there were four incredibly different people, men with different skills that came together. And when they came together, they made awesomeness. There's a a leader of the team who is wise and he comes up with all of the crazy plans that the A-team undertakes. Then there's a a smooth-talking con man. Then there is a pilot or a driver. And then there's the muscle man. On their own, the the thing that the A-team TV show and movies drive home over and over and over again is that on their own, these guys fail miserably. They're riddled with weaknesses. They're riddled with holes. The planner can't carry out the plan. The driver or the pilot can't drive or pilot people around if there's no one to drive or pilot around. The muscle guy can't carry out the plan because he can't comprehend the plan. But when they come together and they play their complementary roles, they become the A-team creators of awesomeness and fun and together they are elite together they can solve any problem together they can overcome any obstacle there's countless stories of this kind of stuff there's countless stories that we are drawn to that communicate this idea different personalities with different skills coming together to accomplish goals. The Guardians of the Galaxy, the Justice League, Power Rangers, the Incredibles, the Avengers, Ocean's Eleven, 12 and 13 and eight. And on it goes. I think there's something about these stories that speak to us because they capture something that we know intuitively that is true. And that is that we need one another. And we need one another, not just because we're lonely, we need one another because we need others to play roles and to utilize their skills that we don't have and that we can't do on our own. I fear that some of us might want to approach a passage like 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. We might want to approach it in one of two very unhelpful ways. The first is we want to ignore this passage. We want to remake it so that it says something different than what it actually says. We fear that this passage robs 50% of the world's population of dignity. And I hope you see that if that's true, then Christ himself is robbed of dignity. This is God's good word, unpacking his good plan. And therefore, it is an invitation to joy and to blessing. And it may be hard, but when we are confronted with a passage like this, it's good for us to realize that our ways aren't God's ways and to submit to his authority 
and to seek to form our mind to his way of doing things, to the true reality. The second unhelpful approach is that we love this passage and others like this passage so much that we ignore what the rest of scripture says and how the rest of scripture informs passages like this. We have to be mindful that our sinful nature is working on overdrive. And it's going to try to force us to the edges, to the extremes. If this is you, then know that it is absolutely vital that you are letting the scriptures, the whole counsel of God, clarify what 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 looks like in your life. The scriptures, for instance, clarify what sort of authority a husband has. What sort of authority did Jesus wield? He served people in love. The authority that you desire, the authority that you desire to wield, it's an authority to lead the way in dying. So let's not despise this good word. Let's not turn it into something different than what it is. Let's understand it fully and rightly and let it become an invitation to the joy of functioning within our created purposes as men and women to bring God the maximum possible worship. And now know this. While I think these are good things for Paul to tell us, he didn't tell us these things just because. He didn't give us this theology and this anthropology for kicks and giggles. He wants us to know who we are, yes, but he also wants us to know who we are so that we can live this out and live this out within the church. And that's the second point for us this morning. Our distinctions, who we are as men and women, the oughtness of being a man or a woman is to be lived out within the church. There's a situation in Corinth involving women who are praying and prophesying in the church and they're doing so with their heads uncovered. And Paul says they should cover themselves. That's the instruction. Cover yourself. So what does that mean and why does that matter? To begin I want you to notice something that's so good. Paul doesn't have a problem with these women praying and prophesying when the church is gathered. Paul doesn't have a problem with women going and serving the church with prayers and taking the word of God and bringing it to bear on the covenant people, applying it to the people of God. And know this, that is incredible and it is radical, especially for this time and place in human history. Paul is saying that men or that women have an incredibly vital part to play in the church. Their gifts have a significant place within the church. Women are vital for the church to be effective and to accomplish its purposes. And so it's good for for women to pray and to prophesy. Imagine something like a reflection service here uh, with, with what's going on in Corinth. It's so good for women to participate. It's so good for women to be weaved throughout the fabric of a church. And, and, and we all know, I think anecdotally, that if women aren't contributing to the church, it just won't be the church and it won't be effective. And that's what Paul's getting at here. So he doesn't have a problem with women praying and prophesying. He has a problem with how women are doing this. They're doing this with their heads uncovered. 
So this would be like a woman participating in a reflection service with her head uncovered. Well, that's strange to our ears, right? That is an odd thing to say. Does this mean that we are all in sin? Because as I think about grace and I think about our gatherings, I know that we have plenty of women here and I don't recall seeing some sort of covering over their heads. Paul also says that that men should not cover their heads. And I know for a fact that sometimes our guys will wear hats when they do these things. And so are we just in massive sin? The the passage also goes on to say that that by by that, that uh, nature tells us that men are to have short hair and women are to have long hair. And again, I know some men at Grace who have long hair and women who have short hair. So is just sin overwhelming us here at Grace according to 1 Corinthians 11? No. We have to understand the context of what Paul is saying and get his bigger message to the Corinthians. During this time and during this place, it was customary for men and women to do certain things that indicated their being a man and their being a woman. And so for instance, women would wear head coverings and men would not. Men would have short hair, whereas women would have long hair. And this communicated being a man, and this communicated being a woman. It was their cultural way of identifying as a man or as a woman. What exactly these head coverings in particular that were uh, in, in the limelight, what they were, we're not sure exactly. More than likely, they were some sort of shawl draped over their heads. But they stated things. This shawl may have stated that uh, a woman was chaste or that a woman was modest or that she was literally coming under the authority of her husband. It can mean lots of different things, but I think at the heart, at the core, what these shawls would have meant was they would communicate the womanness of a woman, that a person was female. In Corinth, though, the problem was that some women— We don't think all of them, but at least some of them were abandoning their shawls. Maybe they were taking Paul's own words and they were taking them to extreme lengths. Things like when Paul said there's neither Jew nor Greek nor free man or slave nor man or woman. All are one in Christ. Maybe they were trying to liberate themselves from a patriarchal society. Whatever the reason By abandoning their shawls, they were acting like men. By looking like men. And the problem here is not so much shawls or head coverings per se, but it's that they were seeking to blur the distinctions between man and women, man and woman, and act like men. And the men apparently were okay with this. They were letting this happen. They were enabling this to happen. And so in other words, practically, functionally, the women were declaring there's no difference between men and women. So Paul comes in. He says, no, that's not true. That's not true. And that is especially not to be the case within the church. When you gather, when you sing, when you pray, when you take communion, when you, when you counsel people, when you love one another and serve one another, you're to do so in such a way that upholds your gender. Men are to act like men and they're to look like men and women are to act like women and to look like women. That's Paul's point. Why though? Why is this a big deal? 
Why would Paul spill ink on this? It's not lost on me that right now we're teaching through this passage about head coverings and men acting like men and women acting like women when we're all sitting at home because of COVID-19. We're sitting at home and and many of us are nervous because we're worried about our financial security moving forward. We're worried about our health moving forward. We're worried about our loved ones and what society is going to look like in three or four months. How in the world does head coverings have anything to say about what we are experiencing now as 21st century Christians in the United States of America? It It seems hopelessly irrelevant on the surface, doesn't it? Is that the case? Is scripture irrelevant? Is Paul talking about something that shouldn't concern us? Well, grace, this matters. And it matters because God has chosen to display his glory and proclaim his gospel through gendered people within the church. God will advance his kingdom through men and women acting like men and women. One of the major major items of our job description as the church is to declare the excellencies of Jesus Christ. We are to declare how awesome Jesus is. We are to declare how satisfying Jesus is. We're to declare how good Jesus's ways are, how sweet Jesus is and how peace, hope and life are found in Jesus. And how do we do this? Well, God in his wisdom has made it to be so that one of the ways that we do this is that we declare this message by embracing our God-given distinctions as men and women. And we live this out in the church when we gather. And we live this out in our marriages, in our homes. Those are the two primary places that God gives us that we're to live this out and display his glory and proclaim his gospel. Think of marriage. Ephesians 5, 32 through 33, Paul just spends time telling husbands and wives how they're to relate to each other. Husbands are to be like Christ and to lay their lives down for their bride and women or uh, wives are to submit to their husbands as their head, as, as, the, as the church submits to Christ. And so in Ephesians 5, 32 through 33, referring to marriage, Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. This beautiful passage in Ephesians, it's similar to ours in 1 Corinthians. And in it, we can see that when we embrace and live out the roles that we are supposed to live out as men and women, we actually declare something about Christ. When husbands, when men, when they lead well, when they embrace that God-given responsibility to lead and to initiate, they declare that Christ is the true and great leader who leads and loves his church by self-sacrificially laying down his life. When a wife or woman lovingly submits, she demonstrates that Christ is worthy for the church to submit to. God in his wisdom 
has chosen to use this messy means to be a bright, shining light in the darkness that displays how great he is. How wonderful of a savior his son is. And how there is eternal life and joy found in him. So what happens when we ignore this? The glory of God is at stake. When men fail to act like men and women fail to act like women, we rob God of the glory that he deserves. We frustrate his wise plans and we doubt his wisdom. That's why verses four and five tell us that when men and women confuse their genders in corporate worship, they dishonor their heads. They take something God intended to increase joy and result in worship and they turn it upside down so that it does neither. This is what I think is going on with that weird phrase about angels. Women are to be covered because of angels. It's one of the strangest lines in all of scripture. But what I think this is getting at is is found in Ephesians 3.10. Ephesians 3.10 says that God's manifold wisdom is being displayed in the church to the heavenly beings. In other words, angels are on the edge of their seats as they watch God display his glory in and through the church, his wisdom and his might within the church and through the church. And when we frustrate God's plans, when we abandon God's plans, reject God's plans, we deny him the worship from these angels that he deserves. There's a reckoning for us in this passage. No doubt it is difficult and applying it will be difficult, but God gets to decide how he will be worshiped. We can't stand before a holy God and say, I reject your way. I will choose to worship you in a different way. That is idolatry. And if that's what we're doing, then we're diving headlong into a dangerous situation. Idolatry is not neutral. Not only does it rob God of his glory, but it's dangerous for us. It introduces dangerous situations for us. It opens us up to the attack of the enemy, Satan himself. And so this passage then is is seeking to guard us from that and say, no, no, embrace how God has made you as men and women and seek to live that out not as a weight around your shoulders, but as an invitation to a blessed life and a joy-filled life that we might display the excellencies of Christ and who we are as men and women. The church, men and women, whether they're husbands and wives or not, we are called to live as men and women of God. And we're to do this especially within the church. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 is concerned with, how we gather. And this honors the Lord and it declares the sweetness of the gospel when we embrace it. I want to give you four implications for what all of this means for us. Four things that I think we ought to take seriously in light of the message of 1 Corinthians 11. And the first is that we value our bodies. We value our bodies. This passage teaches us that there is an oughtness to being a man and an oughtness to being a woman. It also teaches us there's an oughtness, therefore, to our bodies. Our bodies matter. 
Uh, we are not uh, somehow detached from our bodies. We're not somehow different than our gender. No, we are embodied souls or ensouled bodies. And so we don't hate our bodies. We don't seek to move past our bodies. We don't seek to, to transcend our bodies. And so part of what this passage tells us is that we are to embrace our bodies and steward them in such a way that demonstrates we embrace the fact that we've been made male and female. And so for the Corinthians, this meant wearing head coverings if you were a woman and having your hair long. If you were a man, it meant having your hair short, not wearing a head coverings when you pray and prophesy. Head coverings might not really mean much to us today. And I think they definitely don't mean what they meant in first century Corinth. But what are those markers in our society, in our culture, that we utilize to differentiate the sexes? What are those things that we can do or that we shouldn't do that would tell us that we are men or that we are women? This passage reminds us that we ought to look like men and look like women. And please hear me, I'm not advocating for us to return to the 1950s or some sort of idealized time in American history. Lots of bad stereotypes of what it means to be truly masculine and truly feminine can come from this. Paul isn't saying that men should have deep voices and drive pickup trucks and women should be dainty and, and, and wear pink. Nevertheless, men should give effort to look like men and to act like men. And women should give effort to look like women and act like women. I don't know how to, to uh, define all of these things, but I think there's some basic things that we can know from that. Men shouldn't wear dresses. Men shouldn't wear lipstick. We should seek to look like men. We should seek to look like women. Our culture is telling us certain things about what it means to be a man or to be a woman. And Paul's coming along and saying, hey, we're not to, to steward our lives in such a way where we try to stand out from the culture in this and be our own selves and, and allow our individualism to fly in the face of cultural norms. No, no, we embrace what it means to be male, what it means to be fam female in light of our culture and we do so as a way to display God's glory and his grace. And so we have some work to do to think through these things. Second, men are to seek to be humble, spirit-led, and Christ-like leaders, and especially so in the church. One of the key things we see in 1 Corinthians 11 is that men, married men, single men, young men, men of different shapes, ethnicities, personalities, temperaments, they are to lead, they are to initiate this requires nuance. It requires thinking through. That doesn't mean you get to call the shots and you get your way uh, or be loud and abusive. It also doesn't mean that if you aren't a natural born leader, then you're a terrible man. You need to give it up. Biblical leadership is less about giving orders and demanding your way and more about following Christ. Christ whose arms are stretched wide on the cross. And so men be willing to take initiative to follow Christ as hard as that might be to serve like Christ, to suffer like Christ, to be bold like Christ. It means taking the initiative and the lead in speaking up and proclaiming Christ and in confessing and repenting of your sins of saying, I'm sorry. Being willing to make hard decisions, uh, addressing sin when sin needs to be addressed, singing loud in church. Embody true strength. The sort of strength that Christ embodied and act like men. 
Women are to seek to have a disposition of encouraging men to lead, especially so in the church. When I say disposition here, I mean an attitude or a general willingness. It's important to clarify here because women are often called to lead and oftentimes make fantastic leaders. My mom, my grandmother were great examples of this. They led my family and they did so wonderfully, I might add. The big difference here is that men are to take and are created to take the initiative in this, whereas women are to have a disposition, a posture, an inclination, an attitude that encourages men to take initiative in this and to submit to that leadership. They're to be helpers. And women, women, this is no small or insignificant role. The word that Genesis 2 uses for helper is a term that is usually designed or designated for the help of a second army. You are a vital and necessary part of what God is doing in and through his church. And so embrace this beautiful and powerful role. And as you do so, remember the consequences of Jesus embracing his role to submit to the authority of the father. He who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, remember Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself to the point of death, even on a cross. And where does all that lead? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. What an important, beautiful and powerful role that you have to play. Let helping be your eager posture. Let being led be your disposition as you look to Christ as your strength. Do this and embody true beauty. Act like women. And finally, men and women are both to recognize that there are varying levels of authority and submission. One very important note, one very important nuance that we have to keep in mind in the definitions of masculinity and femininity that I used earlier, there is an important phrase, appropriate to a man or a woman's differing relationships. What this means is that we relate differently to one another. This passage is not saying that every man is the head of every woman, meaning that every man has authority over every woman. My, life, my wife relates to me in a special way that she will not relate to you other men. This passage teaches us something generally true uh, about how, about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. We should have inclinations. We should have postures. But God particularly instructs us within marriage and within the church. So there's some real handholds to hold on to within marriage and the church. We have to be very careful when we step outside of that. These sorts of passages have been historically abused and have been used to teach the inferiority of women. And please know this, that is blasphemy. It is blaspheming a holy and awesome God who values men and values women. That's not what this passage is doing. And it takes great wisdom in order to lead and to submit rightly. And so we have to seek the Lord's help for this. It strikes me that the church is the absolute best place for us to figure this stuff out. How do we embrace our God-given masculinity and femininity? 
Well, hopefully, 1 Corinthians 11 will help us in that. But as we continue, we continue to figure this out together prayerfully as we submit to God's very powerful, very authoritative, and very relevant word for us. To close, I'd like to point you to the explicit gospel. No doubt many of us will hear these words and feel like a weight has been placed on us. Being a true man, being a true woman in 2020 in the United States is difficult. Uh, We want this, I think, but we struggle. And if you feel like you're a lousy man or you feel like you're a lousy woman, and I imagine many of us do, I know that I've felt that many ways since I've been home on quarantine over the past several weeks. If that's you, if you're feeling that, then I want to encourage you to remember that there is only one person who has ever perfectly embraced their gender. There has only ever been one person who truly and fully embraced and lived out their gender. And that one person is Jesus Christ. Jesus alone succeeded in the areas where we all failed, including living out his gender. Jesus was the true man who honored God with his masculinity, with his strength, with his meekness, meekness, with his courage, and so much more. Jesus took the initiative to love us by laying down his life for us, for the joy that was set before him so that we could have our sins be forgiven so that we can have life in him, so that we can be empowered and enabled to live out who we were created to be. So if you're struggling in your efforts to be a man or to be a woman, know this, you have a very good savior, Jesus, and he stands ready to help you. I wanna pray that he would help you. Before I do that though, I know that this passage is a beautiful passage, but I know that for some people it would be uniquely hard because of sin, because of sin done to you, uh, because deep down you actually struggle with understanding your gender at all, uh, because of something in the text that doesn't make sense. I just want to invite you, if you are struggling because of this passage, please reach out to me. I would love to be a help to you. My email is on the website. Many of you have my number. I would love to be able to talk to you about this if you're struggling but I'd like to pray for all of us and pray for you right now. So let's do that. Father, I pray that you would help us to be men and women who live for your renown, who image you in the best ways possible. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we experience and that you have made us with dignity and value and worth as men and women. And Lord, I pray now that you would help us to steward these things so that we can bring you joy, so that we can experience your life in the fullest possible way. Lord, I pray that you would help us and I pray that the result would be many across this globe seeing and savoring Jesus and believing in him for the salvation of their souls and for life everlasting. Lord, for those who are struggling with this uniquely, I pray that you would help, that you would be very present that you would remind them that they are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you have good purposes, that you are wise and strong, and that they can trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would provide wisdom upon wisdom and grace upon grace as we wrestle through this together as as a faith family. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.